Even a blind pig can find a truffle. You're listening to They Came From Silver Screen. This is a podcast where we pick a film and we discuss at length the issues that are within the film and that surround it. I'm your host, Josh Tregenza. As always, my fellow host, Damien Danaher, is with me. How are we doing, Damien? Not too bad at all, my friend. How are you? Yeah, it's uh, it's a different... We, we live in a different world now since our last recording. Oh, that we do indeed. What a difference a week makes. It's, uh, yeah, it's the... It was the eve of the like the election uh, the american election of course um it was you know everyone was going to the polls by the time we were recording and yeah. uh, and we were all kind of blindsided by that yeah i don't think i would have um well i don't know what i would have done but i don't know if, maybe i should have been uh, thinking about something more important than a, a, a model film yeah kind of that was it's kind of like oh if that's your last meal yeah and uh yeah sorry, a, sorry nicholas but you've yeah. done better and yeah you'll do better again i'm sure so i'm sure he's good because he's an avid listener of course of course him there's a there's a listening party there him is. uh lloyd uh lloyd foley and uh scoot mcnary all three of them get together and they they listen to the podcast so hi gents uh hope you're doing good um you know you're three white men so you're safe um you're safe in the the world we now live in and that's something no one can take away from you no one and that is the true meaning of black history month i mean we don't have our own month i really gotta work on my sarcasm it's, re- it's just not it's just not thick enough uh, yeah I was, I was gonna say that was way too thin that was like mildly jovial that was not sarcastic yeah you got to put a sarcasm filter over that in post yeah like a deep one a real deep one yeah but it, yeah, oh, it's a sarcasm filter well that's a useful invention <laughs> god this baby's off the charts uh, but yeah, it's... let's not di- let's not divorce ourselves from uh, yeah we the, the, the one moment where we actually want to try and be serious. Yeah, it's it's easy to try and and make jokes about these things, and you know, as we've we posit consistently, we're two white guys um, who have a who have a podcast. We're as cliche as you can get. You know, the world isn't gonna stop for us. Unfortunately, that's not the case for anyone else. If you're a person of color, um, if you're a woman, uh, no matter what uh, sexual identity that you identify with, um, you're n- the world's just a little, little, little bit less safer um, bit for you. Cool. Not and, and and the fact that it's that this has blindsided uh, us all, it seems, um, has left a lot of people in shock, has a lot, of, a lot of people feel unsafe. You know, several several friends of mine over in, over in the US, um, you know, they were, you know, they woke up that morning, the morning after, they went to, um, you know, fill up their car at the gas station and they, uh, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of 
oh, good old boys, uh, came up and said, uh, it looks like you got to get out of the country now, Apu. Because he was, of course, of, of, uh, of a different colour to, uh, to what they were. And it's, you know, people are now fearful of, of showing their religion, of, of expressing themselves in any way that isn't a status quo that was a status quo back in the 50s, basically. So it's pretty easy to be either very bleak about this and be, be woe, is, woe is the world. Um, it's very easy to dismiss this as just being the norm. Um, what I think, you know, I think what we can do, you know, as, you know, as, as Damien and I, as, 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 you know, white males um, of, you know, het, you know, who identify as uh, predominantly heterosexual uh, creatures, um, this is a, this is a time for us to, stand up for those who aren't as privileged as us. Um, when you see something, we can't be silent anymore. We can't be polite in the fact of letting someone else, you know, be reprimanded for something that they have no choice over. Uh, we have to stand up. The worst thing we can do at this point in time is accept the current scenario as the status quo. Exactly. It's, it's as not. Soon as, as soon as it is normalized, it will then be forgotten. It will be downplayed. It will be censured in terms of, well, this is just how the way things are now. Yeah. If... And so everything that we can do now is to not give up, not move to fucking Canada or wherever else, is to actually stay on this as we have throughout this entire cesspool of an election actually try and keep each other honest yeah and and really double down on it you know this is you know don't let you know the casual sexism in the office you know just go unchecked bring it up you know uh, don't let someone feel feel worse off than they than they need to be that people are uh, are terrified and you know if you want to you know you know stand up stand up make and and help others help others because that's where you can start that that is what you can do and that's what people do do yeah every day and if you're not doing it it's always you know liked to be preached that you know people are inevitably bad but you know what maybe maybe it's actually nice to believe the opposite is true mm. accept and... the good in people and know that you know it is a schmaltzy statement but paying it forward does goddamn work you pay dividends and you get dividends and i truly believe that yeah absolutely and, and one of the things you know aside from that um you know we hear you know we both live in australia um there are things that we can do uh to help out uh our our fellow you know listeners and friends in in the united states you know there's um you know there has been a uh, securing of the longevity of planned parenthood um by the obama administration but um any sort of donations uh is still helpful um that you know that's going to help uh you know women's health 
which and in the immediate future is not an issue that is going to be put to rest. Yeah. Especially and... especially in a government such as this for the next four years, this is going to be under prey the entire time. They're going to look, they're going to scour. They've been wanting to make cuts. They've, they have made cuts. Um, we need to load, do everything we can. They will load the Supreme Court with as many psychopaths as is necessary to make a woman's choice not her own anymore. They, they, the, the, the two, the president-elect has stated that he wants to bring in a, a Supreme Justice that will overturn Roe v. Wade, and that's fucking insane. I am terrified beyond words of that. And, and so, don't I like I personally I am doing a monthly donation now to Planned Parenthood. Um, I'm also doing uh, one to ACLU. Um, that's to do with when the American government goes against civil liberties, ACLU has promised to take them to court. They have done in the past. They have done, they have helped things like, uh, you know, interracial marriages uh, be allowed in America, which is something that's, you know, relatively speaking, only recently has been allowed back in 60s, I believe. So, you know, we can't physically be there to, to protest in the streets against this but we can put um we can let our voices known uh through our wallets and that's the um that's the benefit of living in a capitalist uh world that we can help through our pockets um you know exactly. in, and if in you don't have and if you don't have much that's fine i mean i certainly <laughs> i don't know about you buddy but um I'm not exactly rolling it at the moment, but you oh, can no. make whatever donation you want. Absolutely. There's no minimums. You know, it all helps. You know, you can $5, $1 a month. It doesn't really matter. Josh and I both do it, and we are certainly not uh, Trumpian in our wealth or slash perceived wealth, but mm. every little bit counts, and your addition to that makes it just that one drop of the ocean. Yeah, and it doesn't have to, like, it could start in the places in America or it could be as, as local as you want it to be. You know, in Australia is not a utopia for things like women's health or civil liberties and all of that. Uh, you know, there's a lot in the news about our, our treatment of, of refugees. Um, we can help here as well because this isn't something that just happens in an isolated pocket of, of America. Um, it's going to normalize a lot of, it's going to, people are going to try and normalize this to make it so it's fine. You know, things in England with, uh, with the Brexit, that was a, a sign of, of things to come. Um, there have been various policies and even elections that have been won on, on xenophobic beliefs in this country. Um, so do whatever you can to aid in changing legislation for, you know, things, you know, like there's in New South Wales and Queensland, abortions is still in the criminal code. And that's for women. That's the hardest choice that they can make. And to make it a, to make it a crime, unless you are going to be, you know, you, you threaten your own life. Um, is that makes it that much harder and it's something that Damien and I 
we'll never know that, but we can damn well make sure that our that our that we put our voices and our and any sort of support that we can behind it. Um, you know, there's always the the you know contact your local representatives. Um, we all should do that. You know, written letters have to be read. Um, make a call, do a face-to-face. We're all in this together, despite what people may think. Um, we, you know, to tie it, as we, as we get into the, the film that we're talking about this week, um, you know, there, was, uh, there were people who, who weren't heard and, and who got desperate. And they they needed they needed an outlet, and they would take it any way they can, um, no matter what the cost. And that's how we've ended up. Um, so they're now heard. We we're listening. We've we've seen what you can do. The 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 cries of the silent. But and if anything, that's the one thing I have to hope is going to be a positive going forward that there begins a dialogue between, you know, these people that somehow felt so wronged and so divorced from reality and government that they needed to turn to a creature that they didn't even fully understand. Yeah, and, and that, it's... And that, and that wasn't their friend, but used enough rhetoric to convince them that he was. I mean, if, if there's one thing that, you know, I hope happens, is that a dialogue does start to open so that we are able to acknowledge that, you know, hardship exists everywhere. Yeah. You know, hardship is all over the place, takes many different forms, and, you know, perceptions are based upon the context of your own reality. So everyone's going to have problems, and everyone is going to think that their problems are the worst. But perhaps, maybe, visibility will improve. And I mean, an acquiescence towards opposing thoughts will improve and will not need to be couched in racism and bigotry in order to be heard on an economic or socio-political level. Yeah, and it, I think it was one of those big things of, you know, you know, now they're heard. Now they feel that they, their voices are heard again. It may have been only a, you know, a decade, maybe two that they have not been heard. There are there is long enough. There and but there are so many other people who are still not heard, and they now won't be. Like, there is there is less of a chance that they will be heard because of this of of I. It's hard not to call it anything other than a tantrum, mm. um, and that that can be seen as, as demeaning, um, of that. But, you know, I, I may not have always done this, but I'm going to stand with the oppressed, not those who are the oppressors. And you, they fucked up, they fucked up and they've, they've done something that, we can't turn back so easily now. We've gone down this path and now we all have to 
we all have to do that much more in order to to even halt what could be let alone make progress true enough my friend yeah so we're gonna i'll put in show notes and and in the show notes links to to various places that uh, that people can 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 help in um yeah do what you can people because we're in this together and we've got to we've got to do more we can't just sit idly by because that's you know there's the old adage of you know when when a good man does nothing um evil wins and we we can't let that i couldn't have said any of that better myself right yeah so it's funny that this has happened in the well this is a depressing sort of occurrence might as well laugh about it because exactly. that's all we can but um yeah the film we did today kind of gave us a bit of an insight into um the pressing look at americana in the uh the that's david the mckenzie film forgotten rust belt yeah the david mckenzie film uh, hell or high water uh, written by uh, Taylor Sheridan, uh, starring uh, Chris Pine, Jeff Bridges, and uh, an old an old friend. We're seeing an old friend of Ben Foster, who mm. we uh, we last saw in uh, in Warcraft. Indeed, and yeah, what a and difference! Yeah, when he is when he is able to act, he can act the hell out of something, and I would say Pine does as well. Exactly. I think both of these guys prove, you know, on any occasion they're allowed to, that if they don't have to be in some ludicrous blockbuster extravaganza, if they're given real meat to work with in terms of a script and a story, these guys will knock it out of the park every time. Hmm. Yeah, if they're just, yeah, given the, the thing, and, and Jeff Bridges is kind of riding his, his golden years... He's sort of uh, doing the, the true grit redux version, Rooster yeah. Cockburn in, in modern garb. But even so, it's even if it is an affectation, it's still so good that you don't even... It really isn't a criticism at all. Yeah, it, it doesn't make... It, it, it's fine. We, we'll take it. Yeah, I'm not upset about any of that. Yeah, and yeah, him alongside, uh, you know, Gil Birmingham, you know, the a staple when you need uh when you need a native american uh actor uh in in this one he's uh both mexican and native american which leads you up into two races worth of uh off color jokes which bridge's character uh fully gets amongst and yet somehow still manages to make sound tender yeah, it's well, it's that uh, sort of you know the the partner, uh, you know, bruising. You know, it you is just... kind of it. It is funnily enough, what I would suggest is the proper definition of locker room banter. Yes. Not to be confused. A, not, not to hang an anchor around this uh, conversation, but yeah, that. Yeah. No. I, yeah. Uh, yeah, because that's it's it's hard to you know this is this is this is the world we live in and we we're gonna find these 
you know, you find effective. <laughs> As we get into the film and all of that, it, you know, there's a, it's in mid Texas, you know, middle of Texas. Uh, yeah, West Texas. That, um, you know, everyone's got guns. So, you know, there's, are you going to, you know, the old man's in a bank and he's like, are you going to steal my gun too? And I said, well, no, we're going to steal from the banks. We're going to take your gun because everyone's got a gun. I just love the question. Do you have a gun? You're goddamn right. I have my gun. Yeah. <laughs> like, because of course a, they ask, do. Like, ask a stupid question, right? Yeah. It's, and then he goes, yeah. <laughs> when they go, when they go, we're robbing this bank. The guy retorts with, but you're not Mexicans. And it's, it is. It, that little bit just says it's so fun, much. It's, it's funny, but you're also like, he said that without irony. Mm. You know? He actually believes that. You know, there's no, like, uh, conscious uh, discrimination there. Yeah, it's totally unconscious. It's just, this it's is just, just it's, it's, what's it's believed. Just a, it's, just a, it's just the fact that, like, you know, the, the events as they are occurring don't chime with his preconceived logic about the scenario. Yeah. Which and, I have uh, to assume, like, and, and, that, and that's the, a small snapshot of what this entire film really is, you know, in a way, about this, you know, lost, forgotten, rust belt part of rural America that seems to have been forgotten by everyone and everything except the corporations that are trying to exploit the land that these people live upon. Mm. And, yeah. if you, and if you could give me, like, a better, you know, cast of characters as as indicators of, you know, your standard Trump voter, I defy you to to give me one because these guys are mostly good people which I yeah. have to kind of, in my heart, hope is what most Trump voters were. You obviously have the lunatic fringe that, you know, comes to the rallies dressed in swastikas and, you know, does yeah. say all those terrible things to people. Now the, the literal the, the, denizens the, of the earth and the exactly. neo-Nazis and the white, you know, the, the, the white the, nationalists. The, the ones that, you know, Hillary called deplorables and... Yeah, and rightly know, so. And, and actually lives up to the phrase. Yeah. You know, there's a whole other group of people that are just exactly like these people forgotten destitute desperate and you know just want someone to listen to their story yeah and any anyone they'll yeah so let, let's back it up and so so hello high water you know the the basic premise of this is you know it is is two brothers uh tanner and toby howard played by ben foster and chris pine respectively uh they they uh, they rob banks. They rob banks, and uh, Jeff Bridges and Gil Birmingham. Uh, they are the Rangers who go and and try and find them, try and capture mm. them. That's kind of the the base, the basics of it. And that's the you know, it's not learnt until further in. All it is, yeah, yeah. It's not learned essentially you know, until a, it's a, further it's a, halfway. It's a B movie Western storyline, yeah, that doesn't show mm. its full hand until about halfway through, and then you know we suddenly get yeah. Then it's you know then it's oh of course he has you know Chris Pine's character has a fa- has a family. Oh, he's divorced. He's trying to you know the brothers are actually trying to make sure that the you know the family you know the the mother's ranch doesn't uh, get foreclosed by the bank. Um, so that they're actually able to keep it. 
so that uh, you know and the, and the oil that resides within it mm. so chris pine's you know chris pine's character uh you know he he'll give it to his kids um you know he's this is not you know it it premised that you know that uh, ben foster's character you know tanner he is an ex-con he's you know he's he's lived the life of a you know a quote-unquote professional criminal mm. um he's As a murderer he's a, and a robber yeah and this is even this if is that murderer even if that murder was his own father mm. yeah in a in a chicken coop uh, in a barn in april what was it what are they hunting Who knows? exactly yeah yeah um yeah chris pine is a man who didn't have a lot of education didn't get a lot of you know was out of a job can't make ends meet and through desperation he turns to his brother and they go to rob banks because they need out of desperation they are they are they are doing anything and everything they can to to get where they need to be so that uh you know the big bank doesn't come and get them yeah and that's that's what life is for middle america they they're trying to do everything they can and and through desperation uh they will do they will do things that don't look just mm. to outsiders but it's just according to the law of the world that they live in it's exactly. all they can do and, and you but you see that time and time again that like you know the the lawyer that they um that they come to in order to you know file through the money and you know get the mortgage payments done he's like i know that where this money is coming from is wrong but i completely understand and i'm with you 100 percent yeah or like when um you know when the uh when jeff bridges character you know marcus finally comes to talk to toby you know at the very end of the movie you know well after everything else has gone down and is ready to you know basically end everything he finds out that you know pine did this so his children could be happy and he is a citizen of this world understands and actually lets him go yeah well lets him go in a in a bittersweet sort of thing yeah let's him lets him live but he has to let him live to live with the actions that have occurred mm. well that's as he says he says you know we're both in this now and we both have to live with it yeah because it is and we're gonna die knowing this yeah and it's gonna it's going to cause our deaths basically um, whether it's through a shootout between the two or through us just the guilt consuming us. Yeah, or just even life in general eventually snuffing them out, you know, the inevitability of living history. Yeah. Is that is that other, you know, you know, it's that inevitable clock walking towards us always, you know, that that is itself, you know, an enemy that we all have to contend with. And it's beautiful the ambivalence and the ambiguity that that ending brings. Yeah, it, that it that it doesn't tie it up. But it does. It, it it ties it up in the way it should have done. Exactly, which is to accept that there's no clean 
solution to any of this. Mm. That is just a, a retired ranger uh, marshal um, and, you know, a basically reformed criminal now who got away. Uh, they're just, yeah, they can't do anything within their rights. They do, they go back down the paths that neither of them want to go down. But this is a very somber, slow film. I think and is what that's sort of its its strength in a way that it absolutely will, it will eschew, you know, traditional Western tropes at almost every single turn. Mm. There's no sort of you know female ingenue to return home to. There's no you know there's no the valiant sheriff. There's just the weary. Marshall, yeah. who's basically ready to pack it in, but just his own sense of righteousness won't allow him to. I mean, yeah, he's got, yeah, he's got the trope of, you know, it's his, you know, his last case before retirement. You know, and he, and yeah, he does kind of want to keep it going just that little bit longer. Mm. You know, he, he states that he wants to go out in a blaze of glory, but that's, that's all. That's the thing, you know. That's just all they, bravado all, all the, speaking. Yeah, he doesn't actually. Yeah, you know, to die in other. to die in battle is still a bad way. Yeah, because he's still dead. But there is yeah. that beautiful thing of, you know, the other characters sort of describing each other's oblivions. Because, you know, Bridges talks about mm. um, uh, Tanner. You know the way he talked about himself, you know, going out in a blaze of glory connected to the land. And it, it was just that lovely, like, true moment of uh, him basically living that, you know, uh, moment that Bridges kind of wanted. Yeah. Of being one with the land and then suddenly just, it's gone. But also Bridges mm. being wrong about that about describing his brother as a guy that did all this just because he enjoyed doing it and would have spent all the money. Where maybe on maybe some sort of subconscious level in some sort of distant past that might have been true, but the end of the, the, end of the movie basically proves that Foster was in this for his brother the entire time. Yeah. And he never had any illusions about getting out of this in one piece. Yeah, and it was he was doing this. So, yeah, Pine did this. Pine did this for his family. So Toby did it for his family so that they didn't have to... They wouldn't be left wanting just like he and his brother had. Mm. He's going to make sure that his boys were, were going to be okay. Whereas Foster, you know, Ben Foster, Tanner, he's... Yeah, he's doing it for family still. But he doesn't have anyone but... But Toby. So... Mm. That's what he's going to do. And he's a, he's a, he's a criminal. You know, this is, this is his life. And to die in a shootout is probably the way that he wants to die. But this is a way that he can do it and do right by those he cares about. Yeah, it's fulfilling both the, the truth of uh, Bridges' assessment of his character, but also the opposite. It's everything Bridges sees, but also everything he doesn't. 
Mm. It, is, it is the mirror realities of Foster's character, and it's just, and it's, it's it's the same of any all of these characters that you see small like you know moments that like linger beneath the surface that run contrary to the reality that the archetypal version of these characters would have mm. it did feel almost as if this film started halfway through uh their the brother's journey exactly i mean like you could have started it out with like the mother dying and then them finding out about the the mortgage problems and then having to go through sort of soul searching to you know decide whether to do this thing or not and then do it no they like we bypassed all of that mm. you don't need it it's exactly like, it trim the superfluous. fat exactly because we can get everything we need to know as we go through it and i think this way it doesn't let them be heroes because if we did see the pain that they were feeling from you know a, a mother's death and the, now the financial hardships that that we would we would f empathize more with them mm. and this film doesn't want you to empathize with them um not a lot not in the traditional sense no yeah not not to empathize with them but just to understand where they're coming from it tries to give you a window into the reality without asking you to actually stay there yeah and yeah it's it's very much that sort of you're you're here for a visit but mm. you know trust us you don't want to stay here yeah it, it's the hand holding and it is like you know that that understanding and it's it's no why i'm gonna you know hold uh sheridan high as one of the major reasons this movie works as well as it does is because he takes the unexpected roots mm. and he inserts these small you know you know unnecessary character beats little moments you know with characters that never you know are seen again you know the the, the waitress which you know in a certain sense was critical to the plot to a point but the conversation could have lasted one third as long if that was all that was necessary you know they gave a moment for it to develop the crotchety old waitress in the the t-bone cafe oh that was oh. where marcus and are, are, are waiting <laughs> you, you, ne you never see her ever again but it, it gives flavor to the world it, it gives it puts it sort of makes the stereotype you know more fleshy yeah you know more real because it it adds you know uh, some sort of depth to just your classic context and it's just such a good scene it was almost tarantino-esque mm. in the fact what aren't you having yeah and then she just goes on this monologue you know well, well i've been here i've been working here for 40 years and no one ever you know only anyone has is the t-bone and it's the other thing you're not having is the green beans or i can't remember the other one the corn on the cob yeah well the corn on the cob sweet corn or whatever it was yeah yeah and it's like, so what aren't you, ha you know, the only time that someone had something different is when there was a person from New York came in and he wanted the trout. We don't have no trout here. You know, they had T-bone, medium rare. And that's not a choice. Yeah. The choices are corn on the cob, are you having corn on the cob, or are you having the green beans? It's like, you know, Eddie Izzard, you know, cake or death. Yeah. Uh, cake, please. <laughs> well, we're out of cake. So I have all death. Had three pieces of cake, but we didn't expect such a rush. 
but it is it is that beauty it's the beauty lies in the like narrative lack of necessity for a character like that but in terms of ambient world creation just by having a character like that there just fleshes out the reality it makes it real because that's a fully formed person with experiences and a life far beyond the single scene that she resides in and that's what gives uh, you know a film a you know makes it more than the sum of its parts it gives, yeah. it, a re- it gives it a reality beyond what the characters are experiencing you know 90 or 100 minutes yeah it's you know both waitresses that we see the old man in the bank that we see like they just <laughs> they could have been nothing characters that just mm. helped the marshals get on with their case yeah i mean then you know the I mean, Alberto could have just been your standard, you know, for lack of a better phrase, engine sidekick that, Mm. you know, tags along and, you know, throws some white man jokes back at Bridges, but instead sits down and delivers this, like, five-minute beatdown on the uh, appropriation of his people's land and culture. And again, it's absolutely unnecessary. It doesn't drive the plot forward an inch, but it's a moment. But it does help with and it, this kind of, of battle with, like, it's this, it's never like, it's a pairing of, so like Jeff Bridges and Chris Pine and then uh, Gil Birmingham and Ben Foster. Mm. Because, you know, earlier on in the, uh, in the Native American casino, Ben Foster gets into an altercation with a, a man called Bear. Yeah. And it, they talk about, you know, what a Comanche is. You know, it's a, a, a warrior of the plains, I, I believe. Mm. Um, and it's a man um, who hates a man who is enemies with everyone. Yeah. And it's, and Ben Foster, you know, says to, says to the character Bear, you know, is, you know what that makes me? Um, uh, makes you an enemy? It's like no, makes me a Comanche, and and so there's this kind of like this man who has appropriated the Native American uh, ideals uh, mm. versus a guy who's who's vehement, who is who's outspokenly opposed to that uh, to that appropriation, and they, there was that uh, the main confrontation uh, of you know Ben Foster's last stand. Uh, leads to the death of Alberto. Mm. Uh, but then there's that beautiful moment of, you know, bridges breaking for really the only, one of the only times in the entire film. Oh. And like just for maybe less than 10 seconds even before he has to get back to the business at hand, but it's enough for us to know that he truly deeply cared about this guy and so the loss yeah. is felt keenly uh, yeah he it's a it's a genuine emotional like explosion that he's and he tries to grab the body in and then yeah this is it's real pain because then you can see the the bloody cowboy hat um yeah where the impact has happened yeah and it's it's rough. Doesn't, doesn't shy away from the from the violence in that moment because you know it's actually necessary. Yeah, and to and truly then, deliver the pathos of the scene, it's not gratuitous, which is one of the reasons it's 
so beautifully done. Yeah, and then it bangs, then bridges bangs straight into it, getting, getting the you know the the group of you know good old boys who had kind of created this mob, who were going after uh, going after the brothers to, to mm. get them away. And this one guy's like, "Get me how how well do you know this area? Get me onto that ridge over there." It's you know it's, that's five hundred yards away. It's like I don't care. Just get me over there now. Like just like keeping the tears back because yeah. he's he's got a job to do now, and he's he's not going to let another person go. Yeah, because of of this basic madman. You know, Foster's has gone full. I guess it's this. You know. West Texas Rambo sort of thing. Yeah. Where he's lighting his truck on fire to block and then, you know, not putting the handbrake on so it rolls back backwards towards the, the police car so it blows that up and it's, it gets the rifle out. And... I think it's I think it's sort of like, you know, Foster realising, you know, finally that um, he's he's done everything he needs to do. And so, like, his, his brother's safe, his nephews are safe, you know, their security is assured, so he's actually finally able to, like, give full bent to his impulses. Mm. He doesn't have to worry about, like, you know, hurting anyone he cares about anymore because he knows they're already safe. Yeah, because, yeah, you do see it earlier on where he does do a... He pulls a, a robbery off... Uh, by himself he doesn't do it by the book that they kind of played at by doing a, a Texas Midland bank yeah um, it's just by himself he does it kind of in the middle of the day Pine is you know in in the restaurant uh, being basically chatted up by the waitress mm. um, yeah and there's, there's that impulse because he an impulse that is still based on, like, it's still serving the purpose of helping his family. Yeah. But it's letting that, that beast out, whereas by the end of it, he's he's able to let it all loose and go down the way, kind of choosing the way for himself to die, basically. Yeah. Because he wasn't going to be able to survive that. There's no, only so no. many bullets you can fire. I mean, that's the thing. He made his choice as soon as he didn't get out of the car. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's a very much of a a Western sort of. Yeah, but then it's also sort of the anti-Western at the same time because I mean, mm. when Bridges finally, you know, in fire and brimstone revenge mode, you know, takes that perfect shot and takes Tanner out with a headshot, you know, from a decent goddamn distance, you know, it's this beautiful sort of thirty-second moment. There's no words, no verbal you know, dialogue whatsoever, but Bridges basically goes through like the five stages of grieving <laughs> in the space of about 30 seconds, you know, like he, he jokes with the guy, he's angry, he collapses in... He's exhausted through... You know, devastation. Then you see, like, yeah, just the sheer exhaustion, the the complete absence of the adrenaline that fueled him before. Like, he couldn't... He could barely get up that slight incline at the end. Yeah, it was a, it was a truly incredible performance, and it's yeah, it's when that when that shot's taken, it is a, it is with a, a whimper, not any sort of grand triumph. There's no yeah, we're not no meant to feel finish. good about this. 
We're not meant to feel bad about it. We're meant to feel that this is how it's, this is what's happened. The inevitability yeah. of the scenario, I think, is what they're kind of asking for. Um, at least from Tanner's perspective, he he wouldn't rather be anywhere else. Yeah. You know? He says, I am out the planes just before he's shot. Yeah. He's right where he, he's right where he wanted to be. Yeah, this is, yeah calling back that uh, it's like he truly believes himself to be uh, a Comanche. Yeah. And... Uh, and yeah, he's he's in the plains, and that's that's where he goes. Exactly, and I mean, can I just say, I mean, absolutely, you know, full props needs to be given to uh, Giles Nutkins for some of the most mind-blowingly beautiful cinematography I've seen oh. in a movie for. Well, frankly, I can't remember how long. For for the fact that it's it's those quiet times between the scenes, he allows the silence to linger. He lets that moment happen, which is also a credit, you know, to the editor, editing of Jake Roberts that you know he knows when to let a moment hang because there's still something to be said, even if it's without, even if it isn't with words. Yeah, it's. I think, like in the the you know the cinematographer and the and the editor, they 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 don't fetishize the the stillness and the silence. No, they they understand that this is a necessary part to the film, which I think you know back in in Neon Demon, um, there was this fetishizing of of stillness and the silence and the. Letting mm. those ride out. I always, they... I always, I, I always felt in that way that like the silence actually was allowed to linger longer than necessary mm. for the sheer it's... purpose of making you feel uncomfortable because it was violating the uh, cinematic necessity of continuing motivation. Yeah, like when you know, Revan would actually let the air get sucked out of a kind of pointing to it and and. Yeah, exactly. As we sort of sort of said last week, winking at these tropes and then moving on. Yeah, but yeah, spending a little bit too long. Whereas this, it, their their understanding of this is what's part of it. You mm. do have these, you know, when you when you're driving down, it in middle America, uh, you do have those stretches of just nothingness. Nothingness or somewhere so you know where there used to be something yeah just miles of broken down farm equipment you know deserted houses and buildings and companies and everything mm. like that I mean, yeah especially in the first like the first 15 <clears throat> you know minutes as they're just driving along you know introducing us to the reality of this world they live in you can't just look at this modern day urban desolation thing no wonder Trump one. Yeah, it it puts things into greater perspective to those yeah. who do not have the you know the ability to see past uh, you know the the echo chamber that we've put ourselves in. It's not a bad thing you know, to be surrounded by uh, a lack of ignorance is good, but. At the same time, it, it it overlooks certain things that that lead to a desperation 
that we don't quite understand until the the ramifications are felt yeah and i mean that that is itself lent you know again i'm going to do another like you know for another individual shout out we have to look at nick cave and warren ellis mm. for you know composing from scratch an amazing score that lent itself so strongly to the world that it was existing in yeah yeah everyone's working together to create this this feeling of what it is like Mm. to give us that insight yeah and it is it is sort of like uh, interesting this is like the first um soundtrack you know he's done since um the road no not the road it would have been uh lawless mm. in uh 2012 because previously he, he worked almost exclusively with john hillcoat who directed proposition the road and lawless proposition of course uh having its screenplay also written mm. by nick cave and then warren ellis being his uh frequent co-collaborator and uh co-founder of uh grinder man mm. But uh, again, just understand, you know, there was just a, a feather in their cap to get a guy that so clearly understood that the culture, you know, of the world they were trying to, you know, impart to the viewer. I mean, Cave did Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Yeah. And that was another, I think, sort of uh, example of one of those anti-Westerns, ones that, like, you know, rebelled against the tropes that... Uh, existed yeah it was just and yeah and it really elevate, lent to it yeah. and elevated the product beyond the traditional and the stereotypical yeah this is you know westerns never did well uh you know back in the day there was they they, they pumped out a lot of them um they were easy to film um but they weren't um they weren't exactly well, successful mean, in the grand scheme of it's things exactly well you'd sort of if you wanted to look back to sort of the 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 last of the original westerns you probably look at uh Clint Eastwood, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven mm. because that was in almost in and of itself an anti-western and was kind of Eastwood's answer or response or retort to the genre that he basically helped popularize yeah. along with John Wayne and it's like this is where like where do we go next? This is where we're going. If you yeah. do this... And then, yeah. And you see these, this new, this nouveau Western genre slowly starting to rise with movies like 310 to Yuma, like, you know, Assassination of Jesse James, like No Country for Old Men or Bone Tomahawk. And three, or, 310 actually had Ben Foster in it as well. It certainly did. Yeah. It's this beautiful you know, continua- continuation of, you know, a genre that he is able to work very well in. Mm. And now we have this one here. And it's it's beautiful to to see that all the, you know, the traditional tropes, you know, the, the outlaws, the outlaw and his brother, the the stoic sheriff, the the damsel in distress, the the crazy one, the good one. All the, all, you know, the the the, the humble engine sidekick and everything like that to to bring it see forward. this new world, yeah, you know, where the reality is still valid, but it's also being perverted 
and changed and made more real and of our reality as opposed to the idealized version that the old westerns positive yeah it's it yeah it is bringing it forward to to now like this is our reality and mm. the the genre needed to be moved forward to that point we can't keep doing a cowboy as a as a tried and true hero there needs to be yeah. more nuance to it because no one exactly. that's not how the world is anymore and there are a lot of cowboys back then that were good yeah you know so yeah you know divorcing ourselves from these uh realities and and telling a and telling a story uh giving a message of you know of you know the big banks you know screwing over the the little man um telling that story but not shoving it in your face yeah just showing that this is what it happens was, it was a yeah it was a plot point first and foremost in what was essentially a family drama yeah and you know and i and i enjoy yeah. those movies that are able to deliver a message without you know basically rubbing it in your face yeah and it and being invasive about and it. a genre film that almost transcends its own genre because of, of exactly. how much it's it's got going for it the meditation that you know each character basically deconstructing the archetype that inspired them mm. and and then moving beyond it and yeah and everyone allowing things to breathe mm. and that's a that's a powerful thing in cinema nowadays to to be that yeah, I mean, confident you have, you have exactly and to, you know the the you know the most common trope you know in cinema is that fast cutting is that you know distorted almost uh instinctive uh editing process where you show just the fragments of scenes and mm. you know oh. very sort of docudrama sort of kind of what you know uh Paul Greengrass popularized in United ninety three and Sunday Bloody Sunday and the Bourne series and Oh look at and that sort of look thing. at Taken like, Three. Taken Three has exactly. a as a scene has a has a shot has a thirteen camera shot of Liam Neeson, of Neeson climbing a fence. Over a fence. Like, that's yeah. that's unnecessary. <laughs> but and then it's you look at, like, that's that's where it's we're this, getting. It's this it's yeah, but it's this ADD style of cinema. You know, just that assumes the audience doesn't have the patience. And like historically speaking, movies are way, way more quickly cut nowadays. Oh yeah, and they don't need to be. This 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 film proves that you don't have to be. You can take your time, and you can still, you can still tell your your story. You can still have your action. You can subdue it though. Mm. Well, I would argue you can make it cogent. You can make it understandable. Mm. Yeah, you, yeah. You can you can, pre you can present an action scene where you understand the geography of you know the action and where it's taking place, and you know where characters are in correspondence to other characters. Yeah, when someone says "Get me over there," you know exactly where they are exactly. going to be in correspondence to everything else. Yeah, as opposed to just explosions happening and people moving into position for the next scene. Yeah. So it's this beautiful, like, level of old school, just, you know, journeyman filmmaking with, you know, beautiful, beautiful cinematography, most of which I would suggest is using natural light and not much mm -hmm. else. Hey, yeah, natural and, light, you know, on the shoulder sort of stuff, 
we're not tracking exactly. too much. We no. we're staying humble. Exactly. We're not doing, we're not doing any flashy maneuvers. There's no sort of you know uh you know show stopping tracking shots going on here it's just presenting you know what needs to be done it's not being you know hyperbolic about it or anything and so on that sense you've got that traditional style of you know filmmaking and directing but then you've also got this incredibly <clears throat> new and fresh script this incredibly new and fresh interpretation of like a scenario that has played out a hundred times in a hundred other movies yeah and it's bringing it something new yeah, new and and serving it so well mm, exactly and proving you know the longevity of this genre mm. there is still so much you know left to tell so many more stories to explore and i can only imagine in the next four years that uh this is going to be uh um you know a property that's going to be mined more and more i would imagine yeah it's it's going to be less majestic seven is it seven mm. yeah yeah so yeah, magnificent um, yeah magnificent seven yeah seven, yeah. yeah just could, just need to remember that it was made after uh you know a remake of seven samurai that's the exactly yeah. um let's, the, let's, all, let's all be aware of that yeah there's only the original is on the original is not an original yeah absolutely not and it's there that was a yeah that was the old the old guard and this is what this is where the genre needs to go and it's where it has been going exactly. And I think this is really, this is really showing its stride. And I'm, you know, thoroughly excited to, uh, you know, check out uh, Taylor Sheridan's, you know, next work. It's going to be, you know, his uh, first crack at both writing a script, you know, and directing it as well, which is incredibly exciting. And so that movie is going to be Wind River. Starring uh, Jeremy Renner as Elizabeth and Elizabeth Olsen. It's going to be uh, set for release, I think, early 2017. So, you know, he's he's gone leaps and bounds, this guy. You know, his first uh, script, Sicario, which came out last year, directed by uh, Dennis Villeneuve and uh, starring Emily Blunt. Uh, easily one of my top five films of 2015. Uh, beautiful, again, anti-examination of your standard sort of uh, drug war film. Mm. with an incredibly unique style of dialogue sort of you know almost shakespearean in like uh how it applies elgaic phrasing and expressions to pretty gritty and horrifying scenarios you can't imagine that most people would actually take the time to talk as eloquently as these people do and yet it works yeah it's... and it's in, and and it, and it's and it's absolutely incredible and so to see him uh now take everything he's uh crafted for himself and experience over these first two films and then bring it into the directorial sphere as well I think is hopefully at least going to be something quite incredible yeah or we can only hope that mm. sort of his writing seems to be almost yeah to the point of visionary so it's going to be interesting mm. to see him uh, you know taking the Try mental juggle, director yeah yeah juggle both of those uh you know responsibilities because as a director that you know occasionally comes a time where you have to sort of realize that uh maybe the script isn't working in a certain scene yeah and so being able to maintain that level of clear-headedness mm. to be uh you know objective about both aspects of this will be very cool to 
you know, witness and hopefully will just be another step on, you know, this guy's uh, rise to the ranks of Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, we, if, he, if he pulls it off, we need more of him. Exactly, which I think, like, you know, leads perfectly into another man uh, that we'll be discussing in our next episode who, you know, one would have thought he had more or less achieved everything he needed to achieve, had proven everything he needed to prove in life, but then suddenly decided to direct a critically acclaimed film starring Colin Firth called A Single Man and is now uh, currently returning with his second film as director nocturnal animals the uh, director of course being fashion uh designer magnate tom ford yeah and i'm very excited about this this is um you know this we're getting a season of amy adams uh, i was gonna say this is finally i think her year of ascendancy in the past decade she has crafted an extraordinary resume of work yeah and now between this and uh funnily enough uh the- yeah, Sicario yeah, director the, the, Dennis the arrival, uh, Dennis Villeneuve yeah. in Arrival. It's not really a question of uh, whether she should uh, win one of these films, but rather which one she should win it for. So uh, we're going to be studying this with uh, great anticipation to see whether she lives up to the hype and whether the film lives up to the hype and whether Tom Ford is uh, more than a one-hit wonder. Yeah, and yeah, look, looking... I really enjoyed, uh, you know, Tom Ford's directorial debut. Um, I remember, yeah, that was one of the times where we uh, where we sat down in the media room, and we watched that one. um, Exactly, and uh, John Hamm had a brief little uh, uncredited cameo in that one. Yeah. I recall we were very excited about oh absolutely besides the uh heartbreaking pathos of the scene in which he came <laughs> yeah yeah that uh. but certainly uh keen to see um what ford's able to do with a new a new script a new story a new novel that he's adapting novel within a novel if we're going to be meta about it and you know bigger budget way bigger you know, more, you know, bigger cast, more, ex, you know, more exciting choices. Michael Shannon, who is essentially good in absolutely everything. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. So, uh, you... needless to say, I, I am, I am ready for this. Mm. Yeah. As always, uh, you can, uh, you can get in touch with us, and you can connect with us uh, through various social media. Uh, you can find all of the links there at our, uh, our website uh, from the silverscreen.com. Um, there were also, as we said at the start of the episode, we'll be having some, uh, some links of places you can go to if you want to uh, help help others uh, that are not as safe as, as we are. Um, Every little bit, guys. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. This is an insight, you know. This film was a bit of an insight into, into some some rationale, some reasoning uh, behind uh, decisions that were made, um, and you know, wrapped around a a really good film. Um, so I'm glad that we actually got to uh, got the chance for that. As am I. Yeah. So, yeah, but I'm. 
I'm very excited to get into nocturnal animals. And uh, yeah, I hope, I hope, dear listeners, that you are too. Get along to your, uh, your local cinema that uh, has a screening for it and uh, listen to us uh, next Join week. Us as we uh, try and piece it apart, yeah. as always. All right then. Until next Standard. week. Yeah, why not? They came from the silver screen. Why not? Why not? <laughs> they sure. they seem like a couple of good flokes. Yeah, you know, just a just a couple of guys, you know, just a just, you know, two brothers in a van, and then a meteor. Hit, <laughs> and they ran as fast as they could from giant cat monsters and Mexicans shoot, shoot, shooting toma- to- tomatoes. Tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Should change that that, that, that podcast. You know, they're, they're, it's just two brothers, and it's just called it's, it's called two brothers, two brothers. It's it's just called two brothers.